bitch, please. Oh, bitch, please, my ass. You want a sandwich? Dig that. Oh, hell yeah. She's a bad I'm a black man in a white world. I'm a black man in a white world. If I wasn't a Christian man, I'd probably be kicking in your ass. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the JB's Low Tech Podcast. Well, today we will speak with a musical artist an activist, an author, and a social worker. The man is a multi-threat. And we will be talking to him next here on the JB's Low Tech Podcast. Hi, I'm Mike Bryant, and I'm driving my car safely and legally communicating on my phone. Minnesota law allows a driver to use their cell phone to make calls, text, listen to music or podcasts, and get directions by voice command or single-touch activation without holding your phone. Violations are very expensive. The National Safety Council reports that cell phone use while driving leads to 1.6 million crashes per year, and nearly 400,000 injuries are caused by texting and driving. Not surprising, since four seconds with your eyes off the road is like driving the length of a football field blindfolded. And research shows that just two seconds increases the risk of an accident up to 24 times. Texting may only take a second, but it can end your life or ruin it forever. Please, Drive safely and stay alive. Find Bradshaw and Bryant, personal injury attorneys at minnesotapersonalinjury.com. Bradshaw and Bryant. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to the JB's Low Tech Podcast. As I stated earlier, today's guest is a uh, musical artist, an activist, an author, and also a, in his past a social worker. So as I said, the man is a multi-threat and also really in tune with what's going on in the streets today. And I'd like to welcome Gnu Waxwell. How you doing? I'm all right. How's it going? Very good. <clears throat> I saw your bio on the um, on the uh, uh, posting for uh, uh, podcast guests, and it really oh, right. and it really interests me all the different things that you have done and are doing right now at, at such a at such a young age that you are. How old are you, by the way? <laughs> I'm not that young. Okay. I'm forty. I'm forty six, actually. Hey, believe, believe me, that's still young. I'm sixty, almost sixty one. So, much, well, much respect. <laughs> so, where did you grow up? Los Angeles. Um, kind of all over Los Angeles, but uh, mainly Los Angeles. Okay. I, 
moved around a lot as a kid. So, uh, you know, the nomadic lifestyle kind of uh, taught me a lot of things, too, about different communities, you know. Right. <clears throat> and um, was that because of anything in your family background or whatnot? I'm sorry, uh, what'd you say? I said, was that because of the moving around? Was that because of something in the family background? Well, yeah, I mean, I feel like it's so it's so typical, but, um, you know, I, single parent home. And, okay. um, and I mean, you know, just uh, instability in my mom. My mom was fairly young. She was 20 when she had me um, and was in college at the time. So I think uh, she ended up dropping out and, you know, just trying to make her way. Right. Uh, without with little support so you know parents can do the best what they can um i was fortunate i had both parents in the household so but i also got married and divorced but i stayed in my children's life right. as much as possible so i get it <clears throat> so um it seems like as a youth you were into the spoken word how did you get interested in that yeah well First, it was rap. Well, I mean, it's kind of tricky, right? Like, uh, I feel like hip-hop was all around me, uh, especially when I was a kid, because, uh, you know, hip-hop is only three years older than me. So right. um, there was just hip-hop in the air and in the music and all around me and all that stuff. But then, you know, I was a visual artist all since I was a small kid. So... Um, think I was introduced to poetry in elementary school just through you know teachers and you have to read uh the books and you know it's just literature you know it's it's right. part of English class um but I always thought it was cool how you could paint pictures with words yeah. um but I started off rapping because you know hip-hop was around me and that's what I was doing so um I wrote poems first, but that quickly moved into rapping. And uh, that was all through junior high, high school. Um, and then I think in early adulthood, hip hop shifted from like native tongue and, and uh, public enemy shifted more to like puffy cones and bad boy. Right. So, um, the space for me and hip hop was kind of closing. Um, I was talking to record labels, but you know, they wanted the puffy sound, which wasn't my sound. Uh, okay. and so that took me to spoken word stages because my content has always been um, socially conscious, social commentary. There's always been a message and a point to my lyrics. I was never really much of a party rapper, um, which is, you know, that's what the demand was in hip hop at the time was uh, party rap. And it wasn't my thing. So that's how it ended up in the spoken word world, which uh, turned out to work well for me. So, Well, believe me, as somebody who was on at, <clears throat> at the time, my generation was on the forefront of what we called rapping and whatnot, which became hip-hop. And um, 
you know, it started off as party rap, then moved right. in, moved into protest rap to gangster rap. Now it's back to <laughs> then it moved back to party rap, and I don't know. <laughs> then there was mumble now rap, it's terror rap, you know, <laughs> like and it's now, torment the world rap. Right. Now. <laughs> so uh it's ever changing it's ever moving which is a great thing about rap and hip-hop so but for sure it started off as you know about the party about the you know about the experience and whatnot so right uh you sound like a very educated man is that something that your mom uh preached and held you to um not really uh i mean my mom was was she, you know, she did the best she could, but she had to be preoccupied with working. Right. So, um, education as a kid wasn't really a big deal. I think, <clears throat> I mean, I, I can't really pinpoint, uh, thank you for, for, uh, you know, for that perception of me, but I think, um, I've just always wanted to know things. I, I'm a very solution orientated person. Okay. Um, and, you know, in order to find solutions, you have to educate yourself, right. you know, like you. so I think it's more rooted in that for me, um, just trying to figure things out and really find solutions. And I think the need to find solutions comes from um, growing up in the community <clears throat> that I grew up in, working in the community that I work in, um, living in the community. I just see so many things that uh, need to be fixed that that's what makes me study and try to figure it out, you know? Well, um, I know you, you, you sound inquisitive. You must be inquisitive because, you know, that's the that's where it all starts where you, you know, you're like, why is such and such this right. or that? And then it becomes, how do I learn about it? And then it's like, how do I make it better so you must be a very inquisitive person so i noticed that you you used the term system what do you, what do you mean by the word system i mean i said <clears throat> i think it's a, a tricky thing i think um mainstream america we think of the system there's different systems right we think right. of the school system we think of uh you know the system is dealing with uh dcfs or like justice system it's all these things that we say the system. Um, I just think I often run into people that blame the system. Right. Um, but to me, the system is not this collective of um, departments. Um, really, the system is the way that we think. Yeah, the system is the way that we think. And and in that, it's, I mean, y'all could kind of go on and on forever on this topic. It's kind of a loaded. Uh, go ahead another thing but you know i the book that i wrote is uh very much about this and that's just i guess the core to my theory or approach to life is that we mainly live on autopilot um and that is that life happens so fast that the logic that we use in the moment is um is logic that we had previously you know like uh and I can simplify it to the sense of like when you drink a glass of water, there was a point in your life where you didn't know how to balance that. When you were a toddler and you were picking up a cup and 
you didn't know the balance between like the water pouring down your chest mm -hmm. and actually like drinking the water. But now as an adult, you don't think about it. You could be in the middle of conversation and reaching for your wallet and drinking water and you can do it all. And that's fine. But because none of that is in the moment logic, it's all something that you figured out previously and now you get to do it on autopilot. But the thing is, um, everything that we do is kind of boiled down to that. And you can see it if you're like, a, you're being asked a question that you've never answered before. It's, it's hard to think about. You'll notice if you're trying to multitask mm -hmm. and you're being trying to answer that question, you'll stop doing the other thing because now all your focus has to go to figuring out what's in the moment. Or um, if someone's lost driving their car right. and their music is on and everything, but all of a sudden when they feel like they're lost, suddenly they turn the music down. <laughs> they, you know what I mean? Yes, because, I totally understand. Because you have to focus. And before you had to focus, you were able to do everything on autopilot. Um, and so with that being said, um, that lends to prejudice also. You know, a lot of people attach pre prejudice to racism, but um, it's not just racism. Like, to be prejudiced, it's just a prejudgment, right? right. Like, you, you have expectations of something, um, partly based off of your previous experience, partly based off of the gossip around you and what other people have said. Um, that certain situation will lead to, um, you know, it's a mixture of, of things, partly experience, partly ignorance, which you don't know, and you have to go off of um, what you've heard about the situation. Um, but then we build our autopilots off of that, right? right. Uh, so when I was a, a young kid, all the elders around me, um, Whenever you, whenever we saw the police, there was just, oh, it's the police. Like, it's going to be trouble because it's the police and police don't like black people. So me as a kid, before ever even experiencing that, there was a tension when um, the police are behind the car. Like, don't, don't make any sudden moves. Don't stare at them because you're drawing attention to us. So I, I already had a tension in my body about dealing with the police, even though I had no experience of my own. So I, I had a prejudice towards the police. It's, that's just the reality of the situation. And it was all based off of my elders and what I heard in my community. But then that also affected the way that I behaved. Um, then I'm, I'm 17, 18, and I'm out in the city and now I'm acting suspicious because I have this tension in my body whenever the pol police are around and it's drawing attention to me right. because I'm acting as if I've done something when I haven't done anything. Um, yeah, you're, um, what's drawing me attention, attention is the fact that you're not being normal because you're being tense. And you're being, right. And you're... And, Whatever you're doing is not normal. And so they pick up on that. 
because they're trained to pick up. Right. And so it's it's all playing into each other, right. you know. But once I, I figured that out at about, like, 20, and I was just like, you know what? Forget them. <clears throat> and, and it wasn't like I – it was some profound thought. It was just at that age, I was tired of feeling tense about mm-hmm. it. I was tired of caring about if they saw me in any particular way. <clears throat> and up until that point, I've been pulled over several times. I had police pull guns out on me, like um, just a, a lot of stuff that none of these times had I done anything to warrant right. being treated like that. But, you know, that's what the reality was. So I was playing into the cycle of, you know, just the, the story and the narrative that we're always told. Right. And I just got to a point like, you know what, whatever. Like they just people and they pull up on the side of me. I don't care. I'm going I'm to keep on doing what I'm doing because I'm not doing anything wrong. And it was weird because once I took on that mentality, mm-hmm. I'll say for my personal self, I stopped being what I felt like was being harassed by the police. And that's just my own like personal experience. I can't put that off on anybody else. But that's what it was for me. I was uh, frequently getting pulled over and harassed, even harassed just walking down the street. Like, uh, remember one time I was like uh, maybe 19. I I got my first apartment. (laughs) I didn't have a car at the time. Went to a Target buying uh, pots like dishes. So I had this big box walking down the street from Target. Uh, I worked the graveyard shift, so I just got off work and I still have my work uniform on and the police pulled me over and asked to see my receipt just walking down the street with this box of dishes um and of course at at that point I was defensive like and pissed off because how you gonna just pull me over for walking down the street like why would I be walking if I stole this you know what I mean um so I I had my share of, of experiences but once I changed the way that uh, the way I carried myself, mm-hmm. things flipped for me. Well, you, you you changed the way you allowed it to uh, control you. Right. So no, that's quite understandable. Um, unfortunately, you went through the. I grew up. Excuse me. I grew up in St. Louis, Missouri, and um, experienced some of the same things. Um, unfortunately, you experienced the uh, <laughs> one rites of passage in inner city neighborhoods that a lot of us uh, come come into, uh, which is sad. Yeah, uh, I mean it. Go ahead. And I was going to say, I mean, it's, it's the reality, right? Like, we're all individuals, which goes back to the system thing that I was saying before, because um, those same cops, every individual cop has their own, um, like, history that they come from and family dynamic and, uh, you know, their own prejudice views, yeah. um, their, their own past experiences. So you have some cops who are just downright racist. Um, and races coming out of the spaces that they come from. 
you have other cops who have uh, had different experiences in the community that they experience day after day. And what we don't think about as civilians is that all day long, all they deal with is uh, they're constantly dealing with people who aren't being honest. You know, there's some people they pull over who are honest, but um, I think the police deal with people being dishonest with them way more than I do in my day-to-day life. So you have that, and then you have some cops who are actually cool and try to be more understanding. But when we see the cops, all we see is the badge and the uniform. Like, we, we don't see them as individuals. And the same thing, when they see me, depending on how I'm dressed, we're all lumping each other into different categories, you know? Um, even as civilians, if I see a, a bald dude with a computer and, and glasses on, a t-shirt and jeans in the Starbucks, I'm probably going to think he works in the tech industry, even though he doesn't. Like, right. Um, yeah, we, we all we all have our biases and right prejudices. And one thing I was going to say was. And this is kind of has something to do with what went on in Memphis a couple of weeks ago. Mm-hmm. Um, the world is the world just learned that just because of the race of a cop doesn't change the cop mentality. That's something we all knew. <laughs> yeah, growing right. Up, I was <laughs> growing up that, in that those was areas. weird. <laughs> right. But uh, it kind of woke up the world that it doesn't matter the race of the officer. It's what's in their heart. So, right. Um, let me ask you that: Did that experience drive you into, and how did you get into social work? Um, did which experience drive me? Uh, the uh, growing up in in oh, the, like inner city, inner LA. city in the community, and the experiences that you had. I think it did in a sense. It, it's weird. Like, uh, I landed in social work through artistry, uh, through spoken word um i was doing poetry a lot and in the spoken word community it's a lot different than the hip-hop community right like Mm -hmm. even conscious rappers a lot of conscious rappers just uh they rap about it but then you know they're chasing the shows and, and being out but then in the poetry community you find a lot of people who were like at least at that time because this is like the beginning of the 2000s and you had a lot of people in the poetry community who were also working in the community, like after school programs or uh, it was a, a woman, El Rivera. She was a poet. She's she's older than me. She's probably about your age, actually, or maybe a little bit younger. But she had a program called Mentorship 2000, where she would uh, go to Central Juvenile Hall and do a, a workshop and really... Um, kind of a community circle or or group therapy in a way with the youth in Central Juvenile Hall. And uh, she would always kind of cherry pick the poets that she liked um, to come and speak with the kids at Central. If she she felt that um, your material would resonate with the youth, then she would invite you to come and speak with the youth. So um, for me, that's like a put your money where, where your mouth is kind of thing. Like you're you're on this soapbox talking about the community 
And then, you know, here you are invited to come to the juvenile hall. What are you going to do? And so that was cool for me. I, I have been going to like uh, high schools with uh, another poet, Sheehan, who was uh, the host at the Poetry Lounge at the time. Uh, we were doing workshops at high schools and that was cool. But it was the juvenile hall that really resonated with me just because, you know, I, I have family members that had that experience with being in juvenile hall and, and just the different neighborhoods I grew up in. I just saw like my, my neighbors and my relatives and everything in the youth that I was talking to. And their, their stories weren't that far from my own. Um, and it just felt impactful to, um, to build with them and try to steer them onto a different path. So that became kind of a regular thing for me is going to juvenile hall with L to talk with the youth. And from there, I had this idea that I wanted to start a community center that uh, could teach the arts for the youth because I was, I was into hip hop. I, uh, I did visual art and all these different things, but to do the work that L was doing, but in a community center. So I started working on that with a friend of mine and her mom was an attorney at the children's law center. And, uh, her mom seen us work on this was like, man, you should come and work at children's law center. We need people like you who can, uh, connect with the youth because sometimes, you know, people in social work, sometimes they don't always connect with the youth, uh, Correct. To, to where the youth are like open and honest with them. Um, and so, it took a while to even convince me because I just didn't see myself as a social worker, you know, like I'm, I'm a hip hop dude. Like it was one thing rapping with the kids, but social work, that was another thing. But eventually I went ahead and I applied at, at this point. I had, uh, my two daughters at this time, they were really small. Um, and going there, they actually didn't hire me the first time that I applied just because I had no, previous like <laughs> i didn't have a degree in social work right. and you know it was it's just academic world i didn't come from the academic world approaching social work but then there was the uh one of the supervisors in the interview really liked me um though the others wanted to pass on me so that supervisor contacted me and told me to reapply and she kind of told me like what to focus on in the interview. She's like, you have kids of your own, you know how to connect. Because their thing was, I had experience working with teenagers, but the position started off working with small children and children uh, that was zero to four years old. Right. And I didn't think about talking about my own kids <laughs> in the interview, you know, like, you mm -hmm. know, who thinks to go into a work interview and talk about their relationship with their kids. So then I re, uh, reapplied and re-interviewed and ended up getting the job. And then that was an explosion because uh, it was really like seen behind the veil in the community. It's one thing to, uh, you know, we think we know things, you know, <laughs> like right. we, we see things from the outside. And again, it's like the prejudice, right? Like it's a mixture of your experiences along with like your ignorance, like you're just filling in the gaps with what other people say, but you don't know what's really going on. And to go into these homes and interview the caregivers and interview the youth and 
try to get services and get their needs met. And I was a social work investigator, so it was my job to go into these homes and evaluate if the, the children were safe in the homes, what uh, what needs did they have, um, if the if the home was adequate for them to live there, because some of these foster homes um, just extremely colored, um, I mean, sorry, cluttered, yeah. not well kept. Kids aren't being cared for, uh, caretakers pretending as though they're taking care of the kids, but they're just kind of using the kids to get a check. Right. You have so many different things going on in the foster care environment. You have some people who really care, and then you have some people who, you know, it's a it's an easy check because they sit there while the, the foster kids are at school all day, and they just sit at home, and then they leave the kids in the after-school program, until when after school program ends at five thirty six o'clock, kids come home, they feed them and have them in a bed by eight. So it's like they deal with the kids for about an hour or so every day and, and they just collect checks off of it. So there's a it's a spectrum of people because people are people. Right. right. Like, and so just like with the police, just like with the community, this whole idea of good and bad we have is is really like what corrupts our perception because we think it's commonly thought good people and bad. I don't subscribe to that, but that's the dominant paradigm in our society is, Oh, this is a good person or this guy's a jerk. He's a horrible person. (laughs) You know, like people rarely um, just consider that each moment is its own moment. We all have capability to, to do something that's in harmony with the community around us or we can do something that's dissonant with the community around us and every moment is that possibility um because I, i've known people who were like gang involved selling drugs but were like the the sweetest person to their family taking care of their grandmother uh, looking out for their siblings it's just these different character traits it's not like a good or a bad person. Yeah, it's the old saying, there's good and bad. Right. Anybody. And the world that you were dealing with would sometimes spill over into the world that I dealt in 25 plus years ago, which was I worked with homeless teenagers. Mm. And we did uh, street outreach, and we ran a drop-in center for about uh, six hours a day. And we also had a... Sh- you know, in some cases we try to find shelter, and in some cases, if the kid could stabilize themselves, we actually had a program to help them uh, find their own housing and try to sustain it, which right, which isn't the easiest thing in the world, right? But um, and this was in Minneapolis, Minnesota, by the way. Um, that's why I'm at now, but mm. that's um. That's interesting how your world, knowing and listening to what you were saying, knowing how some of that spilt into what I was doing. Because we saw a lot of kids who were running from foster care, bad homes. Right. They just weren't running just to to run. They were, right. They were being used for a check. They were being used for prostitution. They were... They were being forced into selling drugs. I mean, people don't people 
people only know what they know and they don't know right. a lot about that world right and and yeah and so we fill in the gaps with movies and and you know what i mean like media right media kind of tells us how to fill in because the brain automatically wants to do that right your brain wants to fill in these gaps and so um i don't feel like it's something to be ashamed of or that it's a negative thing it's nature um it's nature to have prejudice um it's the way that life on not even just humans but animals you know what i mean like uh you know uh animal is going to take you as a threat when you're approaching until you can show that you're not a threat um that's a prejudice behavior right because they don't know like that's the way that we have survived for so many centuries <laughs> um the the prejudice is is a tool right but um the thing is that um it can also be a hindrance right like we can misjudge things because of that well we all ask questions until we can find in our own mind or ask questions of people until we can in our own mind put them in a box that makes them mm-hmm makes you understand them in your mind and right. you get comfortable with it. So that's the one thing that I've learned in my 60 years. Is there still a juvenile system or, a ju- or do they still use juvenile halls? I, like I said, this, yeah, that whole world. I was world, just there today. I, okay. <laughs> How is that going these days? I mean, it's rough, right? Uh, I know like there's so much talk about like trying to close the juvenile halls and stuff like that but um i don't know again it's it's like the systems right like because everybody thinks that they know the answer <laughs> or like i guess what i'm getting at is the people that work in these so-called systems were always trying to find what is the new strategy, what's working mm-hmm. for one community that we can grab and and adapt and put into our community. So what I see often right now is like, um, and I, I don't want to like upset people or be people pissed off about like, um, I'll just say like, you know, there's a, what you call it um man the the word escapes me right now but um jail is horrible right like we don't want our kids to to live in jail like it's if you go to central juvenile hall it's inhumane like all prisons are inhumane all jails are inhumane and it's no different with the juvenile halls it's inhumane for the kids to be there at the same time we're dealing with a society that we only like to focus on one side of the cube or two sides of the cube so often i see in our society is all this money poured into at-risk youth right like the the after school program and and the this and that program for the youth i even saw i love kobe bryant but i saw an interview where he's like pour it all into the kids right because the kids are the future so like don't pour it into the adults pour it all into the kids but you're only dealing with one side of the cube and 
what I know from working in, in foster care is that no matter what goes on with these kids, the vast majority of them just want to be with their parents. Yes. You know what I mean? Like, I mean, and, and the parent could have did something that we would view as horrible, right? Like, we're like, how can you do that to your kids or this and that? We all have judgment about what's going on. But then when you go out to, to see the kids and meet with the kids and the kids are running away or, or, you know, tearing up the group home or whatever, and you're talking to them and they're like, man, I just want to go home to my mom. Like, they won't let me see my mom. They won't let us visit. Or when we visit, it's always a social worker got to be there. Like, kids want to be with their parents. If you want to help the kids, help the parents. Like, if the parents the tactics that they're using to parent the kids or whatever, if it's unhealthy or toxic, we need to find a way to help that situation, to help the parents have a healthier relationship with their children. Because if all we do is pour into the kids and leave the parents unhealthy, like we all to some degree feel like we're reflections of our parents. Like some people don't even have kids because they're scared of being the type of parent that their parent was. It's a, it's an innate part of us to feel some kind of connection and lineage to our parents. And we can live in denial of it, but every now and then it's going to creep back up. You know what I mean? And if you can help, the parent evolve and help the parent go to a healthy place, then that you free the child to believe that they can evolve too. Correct. If yeah. the parent isn't able to evolve, there's always going to be this thing in the kid's head. They're going to be fighting through life, trying to evolve and always having this doubt of the ability to evolve because look at their parents or they you even need the support of your parents when you you have kids grandparents are a major support when you have kids and you have no family to you're trying to live this healthy life with your kids but the family you come from is all toxic you begin to feel like you're on an island and you can't even have your kids around your family because you come from a toxic family like, what, what if we actually, like, help the family and try to deal with that? Mm-hmm. Then when that person had kids and they trying to raise their kids healthily, they have a healthy family to build with, you know? Well, that's, you know, that's healing the community and just not part of it. You, you know, well, you have healthy I, grandparents and parents and children. You have a, you have a viable community. When the... It, when the exactly. parents are broken and maybe the grandparents are fine and the kids are struggling, it's, you know. But the grandparents aren't fine because right. if the grandparents was fine, the parents would be fine. Like, that, it came from somewhere. And that's the, the thing, I feel like the problem in the system, oftentimes I see, like, the, the grandkids who ended up in the system, they end up going to the grandparents. And, you know, it's, it's great for the kids to be with family. But then everybody dumps on the parents, right? Everybody dumps on mom that she has uh, substance abuse issues or, you know, she's always fighting with the social worker. Everybody dumps on the mom. 
and then mom is like jealous of the relationship that the grandparent is trying to have with the kids but we never like acknowledge that there's a certain dynamic between mom and the grandma like there's something there that's not addressed but I, this is a whole tangent going back to how this ties in with the uh the juvenile hall thing is that i feel like there's currently this uh movement to like address how inhumane juvenile hall is but we're not addressing home in the the root of where the youth is coming from and like i was working as a, a teacher for a short span and and honestly the environment for teachers right now in the school systems is uh it's really intense like our youth right now um it's a lot of violence a lot of disrespect um i had a student a male student who's probably like six to over 200 something pounds punched uh, um a lady she's a, a, a sub who's like in her 60s punched her in her face because she wouldn't let him come into the classroom when it wasn't even his classroom he was trying to go into the classroom to clown around with his friends and she's telling him you can't come in here you need to go to your class she's trying to push him out the door and he punched her in the face and then it gets posted on social media and it's on world star like what kind of society do we live in where that goes viral and gets posted by adults on world star like we're just living in a, a really like toxic time and so what do you do with that youth like i, I get that juvenile halls are uh inhumane but I can tell you as a teacher that's that's had this student and um, other teachers at the school were completely invested in the student and day in and day out, we're always trying to coach these kids on a, a healthy way to view life and meet their needs. And the, that can't combat what they're, they're coming from. Like if, if you're coming from a home with no structure and you get to run amok and then you're put in this environment school that's like super structured <laughs> like i don't know it's, it's like we're not being realistic we think right. that trap music is just for entertainment <laughs> like look at look at the music that's our youth is is listening to and the behaviors like we're not giving credit to any of that stuff we're just like oh they just need a hug in in somebody to say that they care and and that's going to stop them from robbing people like i don't know it's just kind of a we're just dealing with one side of the cube right well a right? hug a hug is a start but uh, i have many educators in my family siblings and they've married and they may have married teachers and whatnot. And they all say it's not easy because how do you educate someone who's, when they come to school, they're tired, they're hungry, their their mind is on something else, be it how 
outside of school, how I'm going to get food, uh, how I'm going to be safe. Will my parents be home when they get back? Will there be a home when I get back? And is this entertaining? Like, I mean, like that's, I feel like those are all, we would like to believe that those are the things that have our youth distracted. Um, And, you know, for a long time, I, I believe that. Until I became a teacher and worked in the school system, I believed that, you know, it's, and so the schools change, right? So the schools then are trying to have breakfast there at the school for the, the kids to eat. Schools in Los Angeles have started opening later because the kids weren't coming to school on time. So they pushed the start time back, trying to, you know, well, you know, if the kids aren't getting sleep and they're, they're tired when they get up. And it's, it's funny because society blames the educational system so much, and yet the educational system is constantly shifting to try to figure out how to um, basically create crutches, honestly, um, because it's so much different than when I was a kid going to school. Like, even as a teacher, the administration had a policy that um, basically the kids are allowed to do late work until the unit is complete. And the unit could last five, six weeks, whatever the unit is that we're teaching for that five, six weeks. So if there was an assignment that the youth missed the first week of school, they could turn that assignment in three, four weeks late and still get some credit for it. It might not be full credit, but they're going to get credit for it. When I was a kid, that was not possible. (laughs) Like... If it was late, it was late, and the teacher might not accept late work. And if they did, it was, I had to either be sick or it had to be a reason why the work was late. It, it couldn't be because I had kids who would sit in class all day and just not do the work. They just sit there. It couldn't be because of that. And then in three weeks, you want to do the assignment that you didn't do because you spent all class trying to be on TikTok? Like, I don't know, like the school system makes so many concessions. And what we don't have is society, like shifting to meet the needs of the kids. Like yeah. we, we got all these things that we consider the systems that are constantly trying to figure out how to like fix the Rubik's Cube. But the everyday public is just living their lives, like is watching Netflix and flipping through social media and you know watching the game and and just whatever (laughs) like the everyday people aren't the ones that's trying to figure out the rubik's cube it's the systems that are trying to figure it out but the everyday people are blaming the system for all the problems well um slowly i think society is learning that they need to come up with solutions also but they, they are so far behind, and they're always behind. They're, ne- they're never ahead. They're always reactive. Well, because it's all individual people, right? right? Like, yeah. like, there's those of us in society who are. You know, there's, there's parents in society who are taking parenting classes because they don't want to raise their kids the way that their parents raised them. But, you know, it's, it's all individual people. So you definitely have some other parents who are as preoccupied with social media as their kids are you know so it's 
I don't know, with the whole social media thing, there's a new type of absence. Um, and a lot of parents think that they're there for their kids because they're at home when their kids are at home. But if you're like preoccupied while you're at home, you're not really at home. And so many people don't realize that. Well, let me ask you this in our last uh, minutes here. Um, you wrote a book under the influence. Can you, uh, do you want to talk about that a little bit? Well, yeah. So under the influence that kind of like came out of, uh, the working in, in social work and really honestly, the, the root of it, what gave me the idea is, um, going to court for these cases and being part of the black community, um, seeing judges like a, a, a youth would, would come to court and they've experienced trauma um, and abuse. And so the judge always makes part of the case plan for the youth to receive therapy because they figure how can the youth go back into mainstream society or get along in society with having dealt with these different traumas and abuse without therapy like they need therapy to help them heal so that they can be a healthy citizen in society and i would see that time and time again um and i felt a certain way about it because partly the system's lens has changed on society right like a lot of these people are are a lot of us are just parenting our kids the way that our parents parented us which was um with a heavier hand than what's allowed in society today so now it's kind of criminalized to raise your kids the way that your parents raised you. Even though, like, I get the the uh, the psychology behind it. I get what's toxic, and, and I get all of those things. But um, I can't say that I, I'm not. There's just so many different ways to look at it. And I also began to look at the African-American community and how many centuries of abuse and trauma has the African-American community as a whole experienced and has had no kind of therapy. <laughs> no, there's, there's not been this energy of healing the community so that uh, we could go back into society and move forward. And working in social work, and then I went back to school and started taking uh, psychology classes, a psych major, and I'm like, man, there's so many different like theories and ideas about human behavior mm -hmm. that the average human is clueless about. And being a kid, a hip hop kid, it was common in the 90s, knowledge itself. You know, Tribe Called Quest rap about knowledge itself. And knowledge itself was always like knowing about your ancestors, right? Like knowing about where you come from and our people before we were enslaved in this country and all of that. And I began to realize that knowledge itself is like, how can you have knowledge itself if you don't even understand how you tick? You don't understand like classical conditioning, like it, like just behavioral theories. That's real knowledge itself for you to understand how your influences impact you or to understand how you can impact your influences so that you can help them craft you into the person that you want to become. Like so often we're just a product 
of our experiences and what we go through in life until we begin to take charge and understand how we can affect the world around us and so that it has the impact and effect that we want on us. And so that's where the book really came from is trying to take all this stuff I was learning in school, but also learning in the real world as I work my job um, and package it for the hip hop community because um, I know I, I always want to, again, trying to problem solve, right? Um, right? Trying to help my community and, and the people around me to help my community heal. To me, that's the most important thing. Um, yeah, that's, that's the most important thing is how can I help my community heal? So that's where the book came from is uh, me trying to translate um, ideas and theories from an academic world into hip hop. Jamil, is that, uh, is that where your music comes from also? Yes. I, I think my music has evolved over the years. Um, in the beginning, when I was young, it was kind of an entertainment thing for me. And then I think it became kind of a diary for me. And now I think it's evolved more into a how can I share stories, insight that I've gained, how can I put it into a story that somebody else can uh, benefit from life lessons that I've learned. But yeah, my for me, that there's no point in writing a song if uh if I'm not saying something in the song. Well, I uh, started this um, interview off with the bumper music uh, with your song, The Return, and, um, and I will finish the show uh, with a uh, different one of your songs, and I will uh, tell the audience what it is at that point. But uh, today's guest has been good new. Uh, Roxwell, and I want to thank you for your time. I want to thank you for your energy. I want to thank you for your, you know, um, I know what you're doing is not easy because, like I said, I spent some time doing it, and it takes uh, special people that want to hang in there and, and continue to do what you're doing. And I just want to tell you thanks and tell you that I appreciate you coming on the show today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. This has been Arthur, musical artist, social worker, educator, and deep thinker, good new Roxwell, here on the JB's Low Tech Podcast. Hi, I'm Mike Bryant, and I'm driving my car safely and legally communicating on my phone. Minnesota law allows a driver to use their cell phone to make calls, text, listen to music or podcasts, and get directions by voice command or single-touch activation without holding your phone. Violations are very expensive. The National Safety Council reports that cell phone use while driving leads to 1.6 million crashes per year, and nearly 400,000 injuries are caused by texting and driving. Not surprising, since four seconds with your eyes off the road is like driving the length of a football field blindfolded. And research shows that just two seconds increases the risk of an accident up to 24 times. Texting may only take a second, but it can end your life or ruin it forever. Please, drive safely and stay alive.
Find Bradshaw and Bryant, personal injury attorneys at minnesotapersonalinjury.com. Bradshaw and Bryant. Rocks well. It's the new. <laughs> it's time to hustle up. Get your hustle up. Get your muscle up. Get your muscle right. Wanna tussle right. Feeling special like. Everybody in the hood know you wanna fight. It's time to hustle up. Get your hustle up. Get your muscle up. Get your muscle right. Wanna tussle right? Let me shed some light. It's a holy feel for every iron might. Sick of the power they hold over me. Might pack the seeds, move overseas. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to JB's Low Tech Podcast. That was Hustle Up by today's guest, Gnu. Roxwell, again, I want to thank him for his time and his efforts and what he's doing out there in L.A. Much needed. Again, this can be heard on many different platforms, and I appreciate the listenership, which is growing ever so much, and I appreciate that. And until next time, thank you for listening to the JB's Low Tech Podcast. JB is my name and f***ing up mother. Because it's my game. I am Negro, Black, African American, Black, Black, Black. Django, J. B. Damn, Dolomite. Great God in heaven, you know. J. B. Our great Negro sex machine.